This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, it's a Microsoft takeover as we bring in some guys who talk DevOps on Windows. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi, and on the phone with me is Glenn Sizemore. Glenn Sizemore. No Andrew Sullivan this week. He's at the beach enjoying his yeah. week off. Yeah, Andrew and I just like passed in vacation. Like I had last week, uh, where I basically just sat around and played Destiny all week and pretended that was my job. Um, <laughs> and then I, I come back Monday morning just in time for him to be at the beach. So yeah, uh, I was, we'll, we'll see how this goes. All right, so this week we have some Windows guys. <laughs> Windows guys. Wait a minute. Not just Windows guys, DevOps Windows guys. Yeah, I got, uh, I, I'm, listen, we've been talking around this DevOps stuff for quite a while. Uh, we've, we've, we've had a lot of shows on it. We've gotten the, the Barnacle team inside NetApp uh, to come in and talk about the, the, the work that we've, we've done inside the, the Docker space where, where it's got a lot of overlap uh, with with the DevOps movement, but quietly, I've in the back of my mind had these relationships with a couple of people who who have got a lot of really solid hands-on experience doing some of this stuff. And uh, about a well, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, they they released a white paper which really kind of spoke to me uh, in, in in just about every way that something can uh, professionally and then spiritually and and all the other illies. Uh, so I just wanted to bring him in here and let's talk about it. Uh, so to, to to lead it off, I guess we'll we'll go in chronological order, the order in which I met these gentlemen. An old school cat uh, when it comes to the PowerShell movement, uh, and and then also an, a longtime podcaster uh, now with Chef Software, my good friend Stephen Morawski. Steve, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. This is, uh, I love talking about this stuff. So, and it's it's always awesome to talk to you, Glenn. <laughs> uh, you're too kind. Uh, I'll take it though. No, yeah. Steve. Uh, Steve. Steve. Uh, I originally met Steve back when he was uh, it, like me. We were both IT pros. I was a sysadmin at the time, running uh, configuration manager. I, I was. I, I think I had something like five thousand desktops that I was just managing all of the software on at that point in time. And one of the podcasts that I listened to at work was this thing called Mind of Root. Uh, which was one of Steve's old shows. So a very, very yeah. long time. Uh, you, you, you took a path through Stack Overflow, uh, which is just another one of those holy crap weird career paths. But good to know you and glad to have you on the show, buddy. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, and joining him uh, is... One of those ninjas that you come across, uh, every company has them, uh, but, but God, I don't know, was it two, three years ago? Uh, the yeah. last MMS, whenever that was, the very last MMS, uh, I, I, I ran into a handful of, of people from Microsoft, and we talked about this technology that we had uh, that, that could migrate virtual machines very quickly. And they put me in, in touch with this gentleman named Migration Mark, uh, and and I, I started working with, with uh, Mr. Goss in there uh, for a couple of weeks. And then when stuff got real, uh, Mark called in Michael. <laughs> and then when it came time for us to actually get this thing out the door, uh, I worked very closely with uh, Michael Green from Microsoft uh, to actually figure out how we were going to, to uh, do this and, and what eventually became Matt for Shift. Uh, and, and since that time, Michael has, of course, gone on to just do incredible things. He was the author of the GIA white paper, Just Enough Admin, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, today. And then he was co-author with Stephen on the, the topic of today's show, which was the release uh, pipeline model, uh, which is really just a white paper on how you do DevOps in the real world. So thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you. It's really good to uh, talk to you again. It's been a little while. That project was fun. I mean, we literally just locked ourselves in a room for a few days and said, "We're not leaving until we get this." It, it's it's one of those it's one of those success stories that I tell sometimes when people when, when when I'm trying to get people to understand the differences between doing things and and this speaks to really today's topic. Like when you yeah. really want to, people people say all the right words. You know, everyone knows the butt words. They 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 get the you hear the chickens and 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 and. Uh, 
cattle or, or chickens and, and, and pigs and, and all the various different uh, ways that work structure breaks down and, and arguments over Scrum and Waterfall and Agile and, and DevOps versus traditional IT and, and all this great stuff. But what it really comes down to is when it's time to get work done, when all the talking is over and it's just like, here's a list of stuff that needs to be completed, <laughs> get it done. Um, that's the part that I enjoy the most. And, and, and that's the part that I think most people in this business enjoy the most. And it's unfortunately the thing that we do the least. <laughs> so it, it, that project was one of those where we just, it was three people in a conference room for 48 hours. And two days later, we had 800 lines of PowerShell written and we were able to rapidly migrate entire VM farms. And it was pretty cool. Yeah, and people don't get to do that because they're spending all their time putting out fires. And I just I hear that over and over again. Well, we'd like to take on a big project, and we know we could make things completely automated, but you know, right now I, I'm I'm too busy waking up in the morning and crossing my fingers that every server is still going to be online when I get to the office today. Yeah, or or even on the vendor side of the house, right? You get you get the same argument from sure from from the vendor peers. You know, it's well, I've got. I've got this account, I've got this trade show, I don't have time, I can't learn this, when am I going to get it done? Everyone's got those impediments, but, but fundamentally, it's, do you want to get stuff done or you want to talk about getting stuff done? Because they're not the same thing. Okay, so with that in line, uh, and, and now that I feel like we've, we've kind of set up this conversation, uh, Stephen, you wrote the forward for it. Um, and I, I love the way that you open this. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the opening paragraph here because I think this is, it, it grabbed me from the very beginning, and, and I'll admit this. Uh, I read the opening paragraph, and then I just started tweeting this link out like crazy. I didn't even make it through the rest of the paper because I was just like, yes, you get it. You get it. You get it. You get it. Okay, so this is how the white paper opens. Forward. It's time for us to stop lying to ourselves. What we've been doing is not working. Our infrastructure is a mess. Our application developments are a nightmare. We spend our nights and weekends fighting fires of our own making. We put more effort into shifting blame than improving our environments. Documentation lags because of last minute changes or ever shifting deployment targets. Convoluted change management leaves critical, important tasks waiting for urgent, less important work. We need to find a better way but we are, we are not alone. I love that, man, because you're right, right? This industry is lying to itself. Like, I, I still run into this. I, I had a customer meeting last week with a customer who starts off with nothing but agile every third sentence and then wants to, 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 to talk about how many hours a specific task is going to take. Like, those, those two thought processes don't work. You can't do both at the same time. Yeah, well... Especially in the you know coming as a as a coming up as a sysadmin in the Microsoft ecosystem, you know we there was a kind of this happy path of how you we were supposed to manage your servers, and we had all these great graphical environments and things like that, and then PowerShell starts showing up and oh hey we can we can automate some of this stuff, um, but we never holistically looked at how we manage our infrastructure, and then in my experience going from uh, through a couple of different. Uh, jobs at different scales, finding out and seeing that, you know what, most of most of the problems that we deal with are of our own making. When somebody RDPs to a server in production and makes a change and things start working better on that server, but none of the other servers have that change, well, now all of a sudden our environment looks different. And you're never going to remember that one little change you made six months down the road when things blow up and you're trying to figure out, hey, why is server A different than servers B, C, and D? And um, and this stuff, this kind of thing always resonated with me. And I've, I, found a, I found kind of this home in the DevOps community. And this is kind of, this is the essential DevOps story. Uh, the Phoenix Project from Gene Kim and George Spafford and Kevin Baer. My favorite. They, they tell this story. I mean, that paragraph is basically the you know first 178 pages of the Phoenix project. They're setting that up for you, and um, and there's just there is a better way to do these things, but there's not a whole lot of 
one-stop shop. Okay, what do I need to do to go and start? What do I need to learn? What patterns do I need to follow? And so uh, what Michael and I tried to do with this white paper is, hey, um, there is a better way to do this stuff. There's some learning that's going to be involved. These are the things we need to start looking at. We're not even going to delve too deeply into technology in this paper. We're going to call out a couple things. But we, what we really want to do is give you these concepts. And so you can take these concepts and start applying them uh, through the lens of your experience. Okay, so my mission to both of you is over the next 35 minutes, we need to get enough critical information in word pictures out to the listeners so that I can get everyone who's listening to your voice right now to go actually click and read these 43 pages. Game, game on. Yeah. All right. I, I would add on to Stephen's comments that I, I do think that there's a really interesting point in time happening in the industry. So you have all those lessons learned where people have identified very interesting ways to run operations and how to, to, to work together across the company, across developers and, and uh, operations groups. The, the, like he said, pain that has been there for forever. But at the same time, you've got an intersection of cloud deployments becoming more popular. And so all of these things are just coming together. Um, and I've got a quote in the document from uh, Thomas Kuhn um, from a book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution where he calls out, and I just keep beating on this because I think it's, it's dead on, that for, a, for something to go from being just a clever idea to being really a revolution, it has to fix the new problems and the old problems. So the new problems are, oh, well, I have to figure out what cloud means to me and how I'm going to deploy to that in addition to what I've always known and loved. Um, and then you have all the old pains that have come out of our operations models for our entire careers. So when this new set of processes comes along and it addresses all that cloud deployment stuff and it makes a lot of the pain that we've grown up with kind of start to settle down perfect great let's take a look at this and dig in because that's that, that's the stuff of scientific scientific revolution that's fantastic well there's also that, supporting evidence to, to to that as well i mean i would argue that that's why powershell worked that's why it took over the yeah. world by storm and became the building block for all of this stuff is because it did everything the old shell did. And then it also had all this new crap that, that made your life better. So Michael's, uh, Michael's point about cloud is super important here because not only, it, not only do we need to find better ways to maintain our infrastructure because there are these, these fragile snowflake environments where if I, you know, if I apply one patch all of a sudden, you know, this whole house of cards comes tumbling down, but cloud is now putting right in front of your CIOs, CTOs, um, all of all of the different parts of your business. Um, hey, by the way, for a credit card, you can go spin up infrastructure in minutes, where your internal IT is going to take you six weeks to get you a VM. Or hey, uh, you know that app that you've or that capability you've wanted to deploy for marketing? Uh, give us your credit card, and you can start using it this afternoon. Or you can wait for another year for your internal IT to, uh, if you're lucky, deploy that solution. And so internal IT and enterprise IT orgs are, are under this tremendous pressure to not only, uh, not only compete with cloud offerings, but to determine what parts of their infrastructure do they add value that's greater than these cloud offerings, and how do we focus on those, and, or, and how do we bring up, you know, how do we get some, how, how do we compete and how do we stay relevant in this space? Okay, so, so I guess, uh, and, and, and the answer to that obviously is the release pipeline, right? That's, well, that, that's kind that's, of the whole point. Yeah, it's, that's one of the answers. And, and that's, <laughs> it, it, so the release pipeline is, it's a major component of it, but it's not the only component. So I, I you know, I, I don't want you, to, I don't want people to think that this pipe, this is going to answer, you know, this is not, this is not 42. This is not the answer to, you know, every single question uh, known to man, but it is a solid foundation, which you can use to build the capability to deliver what your business needs. All right. So perhaps I made that a little easier than it truly is. Fair point, Stephen. Uh, so I guess how what what is a release pipeline then? Let's just start at the beginning and break this down. Are, are, what components go into building this thing out? So I can jump in there. Uh, 
when we when we started writing the paper, we actually broke it into four separate pieces. Um, and it's just because anytime you're going to tackle a big problem, it's easier to get your head around in sort of digestible bites. So uh, we separated as source control, a build service, automated testing, and then release. Uh, and I'm actually really interested in testing. I keep telling people, if you're going to go learn a new skill in 2016 and you're doing uh, any automation, go learn Pester uh, as a test language. It's it's where I think it's it's going to be uh, an invaluable skill for every project moving forward. Uh, but he has convinced me that as an organization, you're better off starting with source control. And I believe he's true because I keep having people ask me, just even for scripts of any kind, how do they collaborate? Um, and I think that's really important. I also think change, uh, source control, ultimately, this leads you down the direction of knowing the state of your environment, just having version control. And especially as you get into configuration as code, knowing what versions of things are in your infrastructure. So what makes a change window so terrifying? It's because we don't know what state those servers are in. Uh, so if you have, first of all, if you have people with access to servers, let's just start there. That used to just seem like the normal thing, right? Yep, we're standing up yeah. some servers, who's going to have access to them? And as you go down this model, you actually find yourself saying, why would I have people have access to my servers? That seems dangerous, and it is dangerous. <laughs> uh, and, and we can go into that uh, later, but just looking at configuration as code, this is the truth about my environment. And that there's a there's a piece <laughs> that comes with that that's that's really really great well well even stepping back just just a half step you know even before we get into configuration as code or or that type of thing um is, is when we start talking about build test and release we're talking a lot about a lot of automation and yeah. so for for a lot of ops guys like oh automation i can go build this and so it's really attractive to start looking at those other things first but before you can automate, you have to know what you're. You have to know what you're automating. You have to understand what's out in my environment. Uh, you know the the question about hey, how do we collaborate on these things? And that's why we start with source control. Is we want to have one place to go look for whatever the latest version of things is. We want to have that capability to have that infinite undo button. You know if if your if your answer is oh hey all of our automation is sitting out on this file share. And uh, or or maybe the current versions out on our automation server or our jump box, uh, maybe it's that one. Uh, go take a look at file times, or uh, don't go in the .old folder or something like that. Uh, that is not a great way to live. Um, if I have one place I can go to kind of see what is what the state of things are now, and also be able to look. At, at things in the uh, as it went in the past, or hey, we we tried the script, it broke things. Well, let's look at the last good version. What's the last one that we that we took a look at? Having source control as a single starting point is uh, is super critical. And you know, whenever anybody wants to go down uh, the path of adding or, or beefing up the automation in their infrastructure, uh, I always send them back. Okay, start with source control. Start using it yourself. Start using it with your team. Make it so that anything that goes into your production environment starts from source control. And that gives you this really solid foundation because uh, it answers some key questions. You know, who changed what? When did they change it? And what specifically was changed? Those are, all, those are some key questions that source control helps you, helps you uh, answer and there's no ambiguity about what is actually out in production. Well, and it's it's you know it's interesting. I I don't think anyone listening to this this podcast right now would disagree with anything that you just said, Steve. But but yet at the same time, I also know that that source control is not used amongst my operational peers. It's just not, and it's it's really a shame because it, it's it's a bunch of people who quite honestly know better. <laughs> yeah, they're they're well, arguing that they want to keep their Office Directory share and they don't want to put stuff in SharePoint because it's just it's another step that they don't want to deal with. Even though it's a step that prevents so many mistakes and is just it can bail you out of so much trouble and it solves so many other problems that it's 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 just stupid not to do it. I got to be honest. Yeah. So the the, the state of 
the state, the state of DevOps report that, that uh, Puppet Labs has been doing over the last few years uh, has empirical evidence um, that's been written up in some in some um, some papers, but that one one the the largest key to whether or not you have high performing IT is whether IT operations use a source control. That I is the number. That is the number one leading indicator of whether or not uh, your IT organization is high performing and whether your business is high performing. There, there's actually correlations between, uh, between the use of source control and your stock price. <laughs> uh, there, there's, there's some articles by uh, Dr. Nicole uh, Forsgren uh, called DevOps in the Bottom Line where they track uh, they track publicly traded businesses and their IT ops practices. Huh. I'm going to, I, I, that's good to know that that's out there. I love having sticks to hit people with when they disagree with me. Um, that sounds like a pretty big one. I'm going to have to go look that up. Well, you know, uh, we've been go- so close for so long. I mean, how many of us got our start doing desktop deployment? And we had a file share, and we had every third-party piece of software, uh, the, the setup files on that share, and we had a bat file or a, command, a CMD file with what are the what's the command line that makes this thing install silently so we could push it through whatever desktop management tool we were using. So we yep. were so close, but we didn't version control. So if we broke it, we broke it, and then the next deployment failed. We didn't have anything that said, you know, th- this is my version 4.2 of deploying this platform. It doesn't mean anything to anybody else. It just means for me, for, for our organization, this is 4.2 or 4.3 of how we deploy this thing. And uh, once you guys like, oh gosh, we've been so close for so long. Well, it's, it's, we're going to get into this. Um, and, and it's, it's something that you guys do a fantastic job of, of laying out in the paper itself. But, you know, it, it's this belief that that computers are somehow some special snowflake and and because it runs on transistors instead of like mechanical leverage that means that everything that we've ever known about the world somehow doesn't apply even though it turns out it does um, <laughs> and you know especially when it gets to like how do you run a team and how do you how do you build things as a company particularly how do you build things as a for-profit company uh, it there's a lot of similarities between doing that with code and doing that with steel. Uh, and the lessons that we learned in those industries, the, the companies that, that are directly applying them one for one, whether it be in the cloud or on-prem or just inside their own IT shops, they're the ones that are, that, that are teaching the rest of us right now. I mean, these are really all old ideas that are just being reapplied in, in, in new fields instead of insisting on reinventing the wheel. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's that's where you see like this resurgence in lean th- in lean thinking. Um, you have uh, the Phoenix Project is heavily influenced from uh, the uh, the uh, the book The Goal by Eli Goldratt and the yep. theory of constraints that is espoused therein. Um, you know, both both those concepts, uh, theory of constraints and lean, come from uh, the manufacturing industry, and. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's not about building widgets. It's not about writing software. It's about people working together on projects. Yes. And, and it's about what is the what is your focus? Is your focus, am I an IT order taker who is just given uh, a task to accomplish by my business? Or is my job at the end of the day to help deliver business value? Am I... Am I supposed to be part of this value stream or am I just a vendor who says, hey, um, you want X? Here's X. You know, and so where, where, this, where, where a lot of this stuff comes down to is IT needs to step up and take a more active part in the business. And when, uh, when a particular thing is asked for, like a, a new marketing application or something, okay, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Let's figure, let's figure this out and let's work on this let's work on this thing together and maybe the solution you, you suggested is the right one but let's make sure it's going to be the best for the, our organization as a whole and, and so that's where a lot of you know a, a lot of the things that happened in other industries uh, definitely have application to IT we don't have to reinvent all of those things because at the end of the day we all want to provide value to our company 
And if my value is I can click a button, your time is much limited. Yeah, yeah, we've been, we keep, uh, that, that. that's my own personal version of like, 2016 is the year of VDI. Uh, I've been proclaiming the, 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 the death of mouse clicking for a couple of, it's going to happen one of these days. I, I just can't see people continuing to, to value that as a skill. Um, They're really hard to version control, mouse clicks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, yeah, you go. You got to go find uh, one of those um, gooey QA guys like Jekyll. They know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, but my my point was essentially that source control is a thing. Was a thing that that was invented and has been around and works fantastically. But for some reason, if you don't write software for a living, you look at it as if it doesn't apply to you. And and really, the idea of version control and source control in particular is applicable in everything and, and can be yeah. used for anything. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I've come across customers that put like actual IP in source control, not just like code, but actual ideas for the same reasons that, that, that we've already highlighted here, knowing who changed it, what the change was and what it looked like at any, any point in time is incredibly powerful. You just can't put a, a, a figure on how much power that provides an organization. It removes well, and, all the fear. Yeah. It, well, and the other thing is source control starts taking a huge load off of your change management process, right? Because it's usually handling being able to diff between different versions of things. Um, it Usually the, the source control tooling will provide some workflow to get review of, of your change by, you know, uh, some other person. And you can actually build a lot of process around how you interact with source control that automates a whole lot of what would be uh, uh, manual change boards just attempt at staving off failure. And because uh, change boards have been proven not to work. There's, there's no, yeah. you're, you're, if you have a change board, you are setting yourself up for failure because there's no way they can act, act, they can, there's no way they can really evaluate the impact of a change across a number of different systems um, in conjunction with all of the other changes because there are so many potential changes coming through. You just you can't. The only answer a change board can give that's honest is no. And, <laughs> and, and, that, just, and that just stops everything, right? So everything, everything else that they answer is just kind of you know crossing your fingers uh, and kind of hoping and praying that okay that maybe this failure won't be blamed on you. Well, and that's in in my experience, that's what they're successful at. Large, large IT shops who do actually unfortunately need to manage blame because it's it's a thing that that impacts the success of the overall organization. That's really what, what those boards do these days is, is ex manage exposure and manage how much trouble an individual shop can get themselves in. But it's not, it's not applicable to the goal, right? The goal being is the one that Ellie laid out to make money. <laughs> so when you mentioned uh, knowing when things changed, uh, that is a good segue into build because source control can tell us when someone changed the file. Uh, but imagine if, you know, in the case of desktop deployment and having that share with all the third-party software and the bat files to run them, uh, imagine if we only looked in one place and we could see every single time something from there was executed. So now we've got multiple versions, multiple authors, we know what the environment looks like, and we can see when every change happened. And I think that actually, like, makes it click for me, oh, that's what's in source control. It's not just you know some binaries or uh, files that become binaries or some some deployment script. You put your test code there. You put your deployment scripts there. You put your project files there. It's uh, it, it actually takes all the magic away from the tools. Like we over the years have associated ourselves with a vendor product name and associate that with our personal value proposition to our organization. So we'll say, like, yeah. I'm the exchange guy. I'm the SharePoint guy. I'm the Active Directory guy. And uh, as you say, you know, all of these things come together. And you, you don't want to put yourself back into that position and say, I'm the build guy, right? <laughs> that should be just table stakes at some point. And you can say, for every single project, we're putting 
all of that information and just check it into source control. So when the build runs, it steps through everything that we did manually before and just eliminate that prospect of human error. And it's really hard to talk about build without also talking about test. But the key to me to understanding build is that it's just running what you put on that in that source control. It's not doing anything else but just running those scripts. In fact, the first whenever I do uh, my prototype, uh, like if a customer wants to see this, um, I use TFS because uh, you know it's people usually ask me like what's the Microsoft tool for something like this. Uh, so Visual Studio Online Services or TFS, but I can't say enough how much you should go to see what your app dev team is doing and align with their process. Uh, but for build, the first thing that I do is take out everything in the build definition and just replace it with run PowerShell. <laughs> because that way everything is in that project and I'm not putting anything into any special steps that are locked into any one tool. Yeah, that's uh, that that's that's long been. I mean, that's how I've written scripts for the past ten years. You know, I figure out one one tiny bite at a time. How do I manually hack this out on a command line, right? And then that slowly becomes a script. Scripts become solutions. Solutions become, you know, these these trees that we're talking about. But but that process doesn't change. It's just how many times do you execute it? Yeah, and, and so. Uh, Michael's kind of introduced us now to the build, uh, yeah. to the build step, and so depending on what kind of uh, what we're talking about, the result of build can be a bunch of different things. If it's just a script, maybe there's going to be some tests executed, maybe some syntax validation and that kind of stuff, and and we'll, we'll dive deeper into that when we talk about testing. Um, but at the end of the day, a script you might end up with a packaged module out that gets pushed out to a PowerShell gallery or an internal gallery, or maybe it's going out. Maybe uh, it's getting staged to your admin workstations uh, or your ad your admin jump boxes or a file share somewhere. Because you still can have a file share with all your scripts sitting somewhere in production. It's just you want them to come from source control and have no individual person responsible for putting them out into production. You want to have that build process because that's where you can put all of your all of the constraints that you need to have for your business to be safe to feel safe for that deployment. That's that's your that's your plug-in point right there. And so, you know, maybe we're gonna push a script or a module out there. Maybe we're gonna package it up and push it to a gallery. Maybe we're going to uh, maybe if it's DSC we're talking about desired state configuration. Maybe we're gonna generate configurations that are gonna get staged out to a poll server. If we're talking about Chef, maybe we're building cookbooks. You know, there's all sorts of different uh, out, potential outputs from build, but the result of build is going to be the things that we can leverage in production, in our dev environments, in our test environments, um, wherever we need these things to be staged. But it's the output of what we have in source control. So interesting. Um, I, I, I kind of wish Sully wasn't on uh, vacation right now because this is one of those things that, that I've been – uh, just arguing with my my coworker here on the show uh, endlessly for six to seven months. Uh, I've been I've I've been very much on your so on that side of the viewpoint, right? Just looking at it, going, listen, this stuff isn't hard to automate. Like we're not dealing with mountains anymore. These really are molehills. They've been packaged up, and there's enough reference out there on the internet that you don't really need to know what you're doing anymore. You can just kind of act as duct tape and, and duct tape together a bunch of, of, of one-off solutions that are out there and, you just and describe my entire way career. into... <laughs> I don't have to know what I'm doing. I got the Googles. <laughs> oh, man. There was a sad thing that happened around 2004. It's when all the demand gen media hit. All of a sudden, IT through Google became not a thing. <laughs> but there was a time when you really could just make a living doing nothing but knowing how to do and or searching against Google. Anyways, I digress. Uh, I've maintained that that the bar is 100% automation because why not? It's it's honestly not that complicated. It, that should be the thing. But but I bet there's been a lot of pushback saying that no, it's the process that's important, and it's okay if one of those steps is now call Joe and Joe does Joe's thing. Uh, I'm, I'm interested on your thoughts there. Okay, so I, I, there is a there there is a benefit for lots of automation, right? Um, now you need to understand what you're automating and where where you're automating. Anytime you take 
uh, a step that now somebody has to physically go do something, whether it's I have to read an email with a re- with, that's got some diffs in it and reply or go punch a button on a web page or make a, make a commit to a different system, whatever that action is, that's a page. Yeah, that, that that's a potential that's a potential uh, delay in your process. Some of those are good, right? And it really depends on what kind of regulatory environment you you're in and you have to meet. It depends on what your test. Is. So, to, of all the things that we're talking about, source control is what you have to start with. But test is the most important component, right? Now, if you're te- if you don't have tests then you want people's eyes looking at things because you're not testing anything. If oh, you have if you have tests that can that you have a high degree of confidence that things are going to behave like you expect them to, you can have less eyes and less less human points where you have to touch things, right? And so the idea is the more you want to automate, the more you have to invest in your test infrastructure. And, and the things that, that the, Go ahead. Old test for me, um, just having lived this because I, I previously worked uh, within Microsoft on a, a cloud, a very large cloud platform uh, before it was known as Office 365. And uh, you know, whenever you would have something happen that you wish hadn't happened, there's always that question you get from leadership: Well, how do we know this isn't going to ever happen again? And you know, that's part of the postmortem. And you go through and say, okay, well, we're improving this process here. We're we're improving that process. But having tests checked into source control with your automation scripts means that at least we know that's not going to happen again. And we're not going to get bit by that one again. And we're human, so there will be things in the future that still get us where we make a change. And these are extremely large, diverse, complicated environments. And so, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be a problem with something. That's just the nature of our careers as we are tackling some of the most difficult engineering challenges uh, you know, that are happening right now. But look, at least I don't have to worry about that one getting us again. And I can move on with confidence that even if I, as a human being, make that same mistake, because I will, the test code is going to catch it and it'll never actually make it into production. Yeah, I guess uh, let's let's go ahead and pivot uh, all the way through to tests because I agree with everything that you two just said. Uh, te- I, I also, though, have, have kind of I think part of the reason that that people don't have as much testing uh, as I think they all want to have is because I think that fundamentally as an industry, there's a false there's a falsity about testing. Everybody likes to pretend that they do like test first development, or at least they used to pretend that they do test first development. The reality is, I think everyone develops their tests as problems are actually found. Um, and, and by admitting that, you go into it going, listen, we do our best, right? We've tested everything, but then it broke anyways. So clearly there was a gap in our testing. Well, now that we found the gap, we can close it. And you just keep doing that. And after long enough, you really are rock solid. It's, it's ironclad. You have confidence. You don't have to worry anymore. All of that stuff has just been solved. But it's not overnight. It's a process. It's funny well, and- to me when people say that a manager made a decision to, we're not going to do test code for this project because we don't want to bear the expense. I hate then, that. Oh, and, and they're the one who will benefit the most, right? They're the one who uh, yeah. is eventually going to say, hey, something broke. How are we going to make sure we don't have this risk in the future? That was the thing that protected you yeah. from that happening again. So, so this is where I get a little, um, <laughs> I, I sometimes get a little direct. Uh, and as, as professionals, so uh, in the Microsoft ecosystem, they like to call sysadmins IT pros and pros short for professional. So as IT professionals, part of being a professional is delivering working solutions. Part of delivering working solutions is writing tests. It should not be an option. It, it is not something that you walk, you go and say, would you like tests with that? Like, you, like you're trying to upsell things. That is just how you work, right? Is I write tests for the things that I want to happen, that I want them to happen correctly. Um, what, especially when we start talking about configuration management, where we have software running on servers in the background that can change the state of those systems, you need to have a high degree of confidence that they're going to do what they expect to do. You expect them to do, and so you, you actually have multiple levels of testing. You're going to write way more test code 
than the actual code you ship because you want yeah. to test you want to test the logic in your in your code uh, so that's that's commonly referred to as unit testing you want to test that your stuff is syntactically valid and that follows the right conventions that's usually known as linting then you have integration or acceptance tests and in the context of infrastructure that is hey, did that configuration management do what I expected it to do? I'm not going to rely on my tool to tell me that it did what I expect because I don't trust that tool until I validated that independently. And that, that, uh, and that is not just part of your build pipeline. Every step of this build pipeline, you need to be able to replicate at your, develop, at your, at your infrastructure developer's workstation, at your IT pro's workstation, at your developer's workstation. These, th these steps need to be at least mostly Replica replicable as part of your process as you build that automation, All right? And uh, so testing is not, to me, is not an op, just like source control is not an optional thing, testing is not an optional thing. Um, and uh, I took a lot of my ideas on this from the Clean Code book and Clean Coder book um, from uh, Martin Fowler. And uh, it, it's just something that if we are going to be professionals in this industry, we need to step up and do. It's not, these are not optional tasks. Yeah. It's, it's pure technical debt. Anytime you, you, you choose to not write the test up front, it's a hundred percent technical debt and you're just, you're, you're gambling on your future and you may get lucky, but it's just luck. It's not, it was not a clever decision. It was not a good call. It was pure luck. So uh, another book that we we took a lot of inspiration from, uh, at least I, at least I have for uh, you know for how I manage infrastructure is working effectively with legacy code, and the author of that book, Michael Feathers, describes legacy code as code without tests. Now you can actually uh, apply almost all the patterns in that book to managing infrastructure by swapping out the word code with infrastructure. And so then it becomes working effectively with legacy infrastructure. And what is legacy infrastructure? It's infrastructure without tests. And a lot of the, a lot of the software development patterns that are described in that book work equally well when we talk about infrastructure as code. Yeah, and I would say um, marrying to test code, uh, this is an awesome opportunity to discuss something. We, we go into it in a little bit of detail uh, in the white paper, but since then I keep thinking about it more and more. And that is in our project uh, where we store the scripts that, that automate the deployment, we've got the scripts that do the testing, um, including in that project, what does it mean to maintain this thing 100 days after it's deployed? So you know, I, if there are servers, I know they're going to have to be patched. Uh, I know that we're going to have routine maintenance. We might have surface account, uh, password recess, things like that. So taking the scripts that we're going to use to accomplish those tasks and checking those into source control with that project so that we know on day zero of uh, this project's lifetime as we move into production that, uh, you know, 30 days from now, it's not going to be, oh, and now we've got to think about how we maintain that project or it gets handed off to some other team that's set up for failure because they weren't around for the for deployment. Um, having those scripts be part of that project and they are also tested and they are also validated. Uh, the other thing that gets me a lot, and we do talk about this pretty lengthy uh, within the white paper is there are some ops teams out there that say, well, we don't need to write test code because we have good monitoring. So we put things in production and we kind of keep an eye on the dashboard and if the green icons turn into red icons, then we got something wrong, right? And that's like saying, I don't need to have good designs for building this building. I just need to have a good early warning system whenever it starts to fall over. Like, that's crazy. But Yeah, and that's exactly that's what, what they're saying. Yeah, you're yeah. right, man. Um, so, so I love the idea of test for infrastructure. So we think about tests like, oh, developers write test code for you know, catching programming problems. Well, what if you just use Pester and you use PowerShell and your test script says this domain controller should be responding to authentication requests and it should have this many sites. And if I go look at the OU structure, I expect to find these things and then be able to run that at any point. These aren't things that we necessarily would monitor for. It's about, we call it operational validation. Uh, in fact, there's a project uh, out there under the PowerShell team repo uh, called Operational Validation Framework 
But that's the whole concept. Like let's write tests that go validate our infrastructure looks the way it's supposed to. And then at any point in time, like you can deploy and then validate. Yep, it looks good. If there is an outage, instead of spending the first hour trying to figure out what went wrong, you can just run your validation scripts again. Oh, this thing over here isn't where it's supposed to be. Um, I don't know. I, for, for me, testing, like I've mentioned before, if I was going to go learn one new skill in 2016, tester, or you know, really pick your, your favorite test language, but if you're uh, in a Microsoft operations environment, um, Pester, which is a test language written in PowerShell, is is phenomenal. It changes the way you look at the world. Yeah, absolutely. I I one million percent agree with with everything you just said. Um, I, I I will mea culpa admit that in in the laundry list of technologies and things to learn, uh, I put Pester at the very back of the list. So it's been something that I've been wildly aware of. Uh, and and have been eager to in, in, in integrate into my day-to-day, you know, ongoing uh, job here for a long time. But I just even see I've even got the excuses. Here's the guy on the podcast yelling at everybody else who who, who hasn't got around to learning all of this stuff. But but that's that's the thing. It's so much that there yeah. is no way for you to take a week and learn it all. It's just not going to happen. I started this journey 10 years ago, and here I am admitting I still haven't gotten around to figuring out Pester. That's a decade of trying and learning and constantly reaching out. Like, th- that is the new paradigm. That is the new world. Yeah, there, there is, there's a lot of stuff to learn here. And the, the, the whole thing is, is you can't just keep your eyes on your particular narrow set of things. You have to broaden your view. You have to care about what's happening in other parts of the business. You have to care about what is happening in the industry as, as an overall. And, you know, it, it, it's not a, you know, uh, yes, we all have lives. We all have, fa- we have, or we have families, we have hobbies, we have other things. Uh, but there is a opportunity cost, right? That if we don't spend sometimes, and this, whether this is our employer or whether this is on our own, we have to invest some time in our craft, right? If you want, if you want your, you, if you want to have a career and not a job, you need to invest some time. Whether your employer supports it or not, it's you who are responsible for your career, right? So you know, I I know me personally, I've given up, you know, time with families to pay my own way to go speak at a conference earlier in my career. Um, was it a was it great? Uh, did it feel great at the time? Not particularly, but it was a choice I'd make to invest in, invest in my career and, and how things are going. Now, do I do that all, all the time? No. Uh, in fact, now I'm trying to back down the number of conferences that I attend because my family situation's changed, right? So, but you have to be, you have to make, I, but I know I miss opportunities because of that. And so we have to, you know, when we look at all the different technologies and things to learn is you have to be number one, be aware of them. So you can make that conscious decision. I'm going to invest my time in this. I'm going to see if I can get my employer to invest some of my time in this. And, and, or I'm going to make the conscious decision to ignore this for now, because choosing not to look at this stuff is still making a choice. Yeah, I think there's a pattern there. I've heard you describe it before, Stephen, but uh, we all want to be the hero. So if the building does fall over, we want to be the one that put, that put it back together. Um, but it's an uncomfortable conversation to go talk to business leaders and say, how do we make IT uh, an important part of the value of our organization? And you know, that's I, I went to OpenStack Summit last week, and uh, one of the presenters in the keynote called out, uh, you know, Goodyear, uh, their, their value proposition isn't tires, it's mileage. And for, uh, you know, so for some other company, it might be, yeah, they make shoes, but what they're really interested in is fitness, right? That's the guy. It's like, wow, if you yeah. apply that to IT, that's fantastic, right? It's, we don't, you know, my, my job is not to keep the server running. It's to have the sales organization be more effective. So, you know, what can I do in IT to better enable them? And the Phoenix Project obviously just beats on that idea over and over again. But oh, it's so it's so powerful though. Like I remember the first time I read that book, I I, I 
it was it's like the first third of the book is them just recounting the way that just about every IT shop in this world runs today in 2016. And I remember reading it and it was just like, oh, yeah, that's totally what it's like. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm so glad that's not my life anymore. Oh, that sucks <laughs> when that happened. And then about uh, and then it was it's about the two third point where all of a sudden I realized like, oh, no, like that wasn't happy memories of a, a career that I no longer practice like. I did that wrong the entire time and nobody knew like we were all doing it wrong and nobody mm -hmm. knew we all thought we were professionals. We went to conferences and taught other people our broken practices like that's how institutionalized it is. Right. And it continues to be that way. So oh, which yeah. is why this is such a big deal. Like the, 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 the concept of of aligning everything around a value stream and, and whether you're in HR or you're the, the server build ops guy. You're all part of that common value stream and you're all working together to try to make the company money or to try to, to, to solve hunger, or whatever your, 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 whatever that organization's purpose on this planet is. If you can get everybody pulling on that rope, man, you can make a way bigger difference than if you got a couple of people pulling and everybody else watching. Yes. So a perfect example, uh, and boy, I can, I can rant on this one all day. But uh, whether it's an in-house app or a third-party app, you know, someone within your organization, like if you work for a hospital and there's a healthcare application, someone within the hospital is responsible for that app. Right? They're the app owner. Uh, but it never fails when it comes time to standing up the servers or rolling out the, the client app. You know, the, for that deployment weekend, like they're around, but it's the ops guys. You know, if it requires 100 servers, they're the ones who took the app wrote the deployment scripts, and then if, if they roll out 100 servers, but 15 of them, the deployment didn't go well, they're the ones who stay there till midnight. And that, I've lived that experience, and I know what that's like. And, you know, when you were talking about, uh, like, you, you're thinking back in your past, and you go, oh, that's not a happy memory. <laughs> and it's uh, having that relationship where if in that source control, that's not just an operations thing. The app owner is responsible for building out the scripts that do the deployments or they at least share the responsibility with operations. And that kind of, you know, phases us over into the release part of the document. Uh, just having a standardized process, following the same patterns and having that shared responsibility with the app owner so that, you know, oh, these last 15 servers didn't deploy the way they're supposed to. Well, look, our deployments, as far as executing that script, seems to have gone without any problems and it passed the tests. And it worked in the test environment, but it failed in production. So everyone needs to be a stakeholder in those last 15 machines. Is there something fundamentally broken that's going to prevent this app from being successful for us? Uh, and, and it just pains me to think back on all the times when the application owner didn't have an equal stake in that deployment. Yeah, I'm still convinced, you know, that the people make the joke all the time. You know, you call support and the very first thing support has you do is reboot it. You know, it... it a, that's because that almost always fixes the problem. <laughs> but B, it's because quite nobody knows. That, that, yes, the person who wrote that code would be able to tell you, look in this directory in this event, like what, what did this process say? Is this service started with that one? Okay, well, this is your problem. But that's the only person on the planet who can do that. Everybody else is just blindly poking in the dark trying to get this thing to tell them where it hurts. Yeah, and I, I keep playing with this idea, and it's extreme, I get that, but I wonder if we won't end up someday uh, in engineering you know, patterns and practices where uh, when someone just re opens a remote desktop console and they connect directly into a production server because there's an outage and they need to get it back in, uh, you know, the conversation kind of goes like this, oh, so there was an outage yesterday, and I see here that you logged in and you made changes. Yeah, I had to. My boss was, you know, over my shoulder. So how long were you logged in? 90 minutes. Well, what did you change? Uh, I don't really know. I hammered on it until the service was restored, right? Because I wanted to be the hero. And it's like, you made 90 minutes worth of changes in production, and you don't know what they were. This is borderline a security incident now. Because when we go into the next change window, we're not going to know what this looks like. Like We don't know if there are oh, yeah. five changes yeah. that are pending reboot and we could be we could apply a security update that requires a, a reboot and for all we know this thing's going to go flat and never come back from that reboot 
because we don't know what you changed. It never went through tests, and it was not properly released in a standardized way. No one agreed on it. No one uh, did operational validation to see if those changes would be uh, good for validation. And this is kind of interesting, too. You end up thinking about treating virtual machines, or let's just say treating servers, the way we treat PaaS. So you would never expect your cloud hoster to just randomize the underlying infrastructure that you're deploying your applications on. Like that, You would just not use them anymore if that happened. Uh, but yet when it comes to IaaS or virtual machines or even physical servers, we have no problem doing that to ourselves, saying, oh, I'm just going to you know, make this change haphazardly in the environment. And I'm going to do it just point and click style because you know, I, I think I can get this right, not validated, not tested. And then when we deploy our apps onto it, it's not consistent. And then we're back into banging our heads against our desk again. Um, I just, when you well, walk through that mentally, it's it, like, well, maybe that's not as extreme as it first seemed, you know, that we, well, would, we would consider that crazy to randomly change servers. Or, or you have that 90 minutes of change, and now that, that server hardware dies, and you have to spin up a new node and reconfigure yeah. it. Well, what, what actually made that thing work? Well, you know, it, and I, I feel like anyone listening to this is, is right now nodding their head going, well, of course. Um, but, but the counter argument to that is, well, what if you just don't know? Like, so, so you guys have, have I, I feel like, very successfully kind of laid out, hey, if you wanted to know how to do this in a pure Microsoft world, there's two different sides of the coin, as, as we say, you know, there's the ops dev guy and the DevOps guy. You know, or which side of the house do you typically work on, the production operations side or the back end, you know, write the software side? Um, very rarely, in, except in smaller companies, do you actually get to touch both at the same time. Um, but depending on where you are, the argument is we don't have those skills. Like, okay, so source control, we can get source control to today. That's easy. Either we stand one up internally or just go create an account on Git or, or uh, use an Azure TFS instance. Problem solved, right? Everybody can handle that. And then, but, but then once you get to the very next step of build, well, that, that requires you to be able to, to teach a computer how to build your application stack. And whilst that is easier today than it has ever been ever in the history of this planet, it is still harder than having Joe log in through a remote desktop and follow a YouTube video. And i got to be honest, as a vendor who produces documentation that teaches people how to install things for a living, I would love to start giving them recipes and <laughs> you know configuration yeah. scripts it's less work for me, right? <laughs> but they won't take it the, as the industry still demands those videos and the guides. Yeah, it, so there, there's, there's building an app stack and there's getting, getting your scripts out into production and there, there, there's a couple of different components there, right? So it's, it's what you're all gonna deliver. So if you're delivering an application in your environment, you probably already have people working on a build process in your in your infrastructure, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of finding those people and grabbing them and sucking them dry of information. The but if you don't already have that, you're probably going to be deploying maybe your infrastructure deployment scripts, maybe your configuration management, uh, things like that. And we do know how to generate those things. We're doing them all manually, and now it's a matter of putting those things into a PowerShell script. And just about every build server in, in the ecosystem knows how to run a PowerShell script, right? And so you just, you, like Michael said, you take a build server, you rip out everything you don't really care about, which is everything, and tell it, run this PowerShell script. And you know how to write a PowerShell script. And just slowly add those commands one at a time until that and thing just, knows how to deploy your app. Yep. And, yeah. And so it knows how to test it. It knows how to validate syntax, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and if you're just getting started, um, we naturally want to tackle the hardest problems and most interesting problems first. But think of the time saving if you just get to the point where uh, a new, you know, to, to go deploy this, uh, you know, there's a script that goes and gets the gold image for the operating system, uh, stands up a new VM, and then even if it's just the basics, so it brings the right Windows Server features online and it makes sure the machine's fully patched and maybe two or three other things, things that you never enjoyed doing anyway, right? You, you enjoyed the hard problem solving. Let's get to the point where the app gets installed so I can learn about the app, become an expert on the subject matter, and then I can start thinking about how I want to automate the rest of that process. But 
no one, you know, on Monday morning is like, I can't wait to get to the office so that I can uh, mount an ISO to a virtual machine and and start it and then wait, you know, for that setup to finish and then point and click my way through. Like, that's not where we provide value to the business. So automate those pieces so that they're no longer part of your life. And then you can start tackling those more interesting problems. And by that point, you'll have enough experience to say, okay, well, this is how I'm going to tackle automating the other pieces. So maybe that means... Uh, if this is going into a load balancing pool, maybe I can automate some aspects of that, include that in my deployment scripts. Maybe there's some storage pieces of this where there's going to be a new volume that needs to be provisioned for you know, a, a database as part of this application, something like that. So I can script that in as well. So you don't want to think you want to think outside you know, outside the box, but outside of the virtual machine uh, for what you're including in your deployment so that all those pieces, that took time and took uh, took you away from providing value to your organization. Just automate those things away first, uh, and those are reusable. You're, you're going to use those for the next 100 projects, not just for this. Yeah, I feel like this. The, it, perhaps this is um, the, the the automation wave that that picked my career up and landed me, you know, where I am today. Uh, it feels like this is a, a second coming of that wave, only this time with enough additional practice and patterns around it that, you know, hopefully it can actually take the industry instead of just a couple of souls uh, for, 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 for the trip here, right? Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's, gonna, it's only going to get more in our face. So we all see containers coming, and it's, it's going to be completely natural to, to automate the creation of containers uh, so that they're consistent and then automate the delivery of containers. So that's just one example of probably five or six things that we all see coming at us where if we don't get on this train, it's going to go past us. Yeah. Uh, Mike summed it up really well there. <laughs> okay. So again, like, I, I don't know, perhaps it's just because it's just myself and Justin this week, and we don't have Andrew on the show to argue with me uh, incessantly for an hour and a half. Um, but but I don't I can't see how anybody would disagree with that. So then we get back to the challenge of, but that's not the system I have today. So so what do you what would you both say to to the IT pro who's just driving into work, sitting in traffic today, listening here, and he he's getting ready to go to work to mount an ISO to a VM, right? That's his that's his exciting <laughs> Friday morning, and you've just crushed his hopes and dreams. But hope is not lost because the reality is there's a path forward. What is it? Uh, yeah, I'll tackle that one. I, I feel really strongly about this. So your your value as the, the smart person that you know you are, right? Your, your value as an architect to your organization uh, is where you go hear about there's groups within the industry. They're trying out a different approach to operations. We've never really looked at that before. But I know in our organization, we've got a certain set of tools, and that's what people know how to use. And uh, doesn't make any sense. Like we we paid a lot of money for these things, so we're not just going to shut them off and try something else. So your value is connecting the dots. So this is how you know. It, I guarantee you, whatever you're using for the deploy software right now, it has an API and it has a scriptable interface. And uh, you know, even if you have to integrate this down to it can go this far and then it creates a work ticket or something like that, right? You, your value is bringing additional smart people into a room, thinking through what's our long-term strategy to get to that, you know, that flag that we're going to plant a mile from where we're at now, uh, but how are we going to connect the tools we have with changes in culture to eventually get us over there? And uh, when you talk about your personal value to your employer, that is a big skill to have. Uh, and it, it's really just a matter of having patience and having an open mind and being able to sit back and listen and not just argue with people when they've got proposals for new ideas uh, and just taking small steps until you eventually start heading the right direction. Well said, man. Good grief. Yeah, you do have a good answer for that. Um, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and it comes back to your the, the, the point you just made about containers, right? I mean... Listen, the, the group that, that thought Docker was a clever name a year and a half ago and started reading up on it then, they're the people in all of these companies today that are trying to t teach them how to run this stuff in production, right? That's not an accident. It's because they started. You know, if, if you want to be part of this next wave, just start. No one has to give you permission. As Michael just said, you're there because you're talented, not because you know how to hit a button. Speaking of, speaking of being here because I can hit a button... 
<laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> I draw the podcast. All right, Stephen, how can we get in touch with you if we want to ask you more questions? Or just don't tell us anything and we won't ask you anything. Well, you can uh, you can find me out on Twitter at Stephen Murawski. Uh, my blog is stephenmurawski.com. And uh, you find me at a bunch of different user groups and things like that as well. Uh, but Twitter's probably the b- best way to get a hold of me. And Michael, where can we find you? Uh, on Twitter, I am M I Green M I G R E E N E. That is, isn't that, this sounds funny, but that is the best way to get a hold of me right now. The URL for the white paper also uh, is aka.ms/slash/the-release-pipeline-model. Or if you're a fan of fewer keystrokes, it's aka.ms/trpm, uh, and that will take you out to the PDF. It's about 50 pages, so. It's not, you know, light reading, but I like Glenn's approach. Get through that forward, and uh, maybe it'll motivate <laughs> to, you know, get through the next page. I read the whole paper. I just started <laughs> tweeting it after I read the forward. <laughs> I only tweeted after I read the title. <laughs> All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or via techontappodcast.com. If you like this show today, leave us a review on behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, as well as uh, Michael Green and Stephen Morowski. Thanks for listening. How you doing over there, Glenn? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to readjust this work thing. My brain thinks that I should be playing Iron Banner right now, and I can't be doing that. <laughs> My brain thinks I should be eating a biscuit. Okay, okay we're both broken. Yeah. So uh, you go me? get lunch, and I'm going to try to force myself oh, yeah. to not play video games. Done. <laughs> Easy enough. <laughs>